smile. And he said, and is teaching me the depths of God's love for me. And these are the kinds of stories that are happening at a place like Berkeley. You know, many people, probably some of you here this morning, think of Berkeley as just kind of bizarro land, right? So I have a friend who tells a story of, of uh, moving to Berkeley, and he was sitting in a coffee shop, and out on the sidewalk walks by a guy in a pink tutu and a green wig. And about a minute later, a guy, another guy walks by carrying his Bible in hand. And the guy sitting next to him in the coffee shop says, Did you see that? He was carrying a Bible. <laughs> Only in Berkeley. Only in Berkeley. And, you know, others of you here this morning probably perceive Berkeley to be a place that Jesus uh, has abandoned. When I, when I moved to Berkeley in the summer of 2006, I, I got a letter from someone. Uh, who said, the letter said, Berkeley, huh? Question mark. That word arouses the same emotions in me as the word cancer. And maybe that's how you think about places like Berkeley this morning, but I'm here to tell you that God is wildly at work in Berkeley. Jesus is wildly at work in Berkeley. It's amazing to me to think about what God has done over the last seven years. I grew up in Greenville, as Jake mentioned, um, so was just the most likely candidate, obviously, to go to Berkeley. And, uh, and it was the fall of 2006. It was actually August of 2006. It was my first day on campus, and uh, I was standing on Sproul Plaza. Sproul Plaza is the main thoroughfare of campus, and, uh, and it was just hopping with people. Uh, it was the first day of classes, and so here I am standing in this sea of people, and I remember thinking to myself, I'm at the number one public university in the world. Uh, I'm at one of the most secular universities in the world. I'm in a place where, to many, to most probably, Christianity is intellectual suicide. There are 35,000 people on this campus, and I don't know a single person. And I would love to tell you that this was some sort of hallelujah moment for me where, you know, the skies peeled back and all of a sudden, you know, I'm just like this moment of trust and confidence and utter faith in what God is going to do. It was one of the most terrifying moments of my life. I remember thinking, what, what have I gotten myself into? Uh, nobody knows that I'm here. Nobody cares that I'm here. And I, I, I honestly, I walked off campus that day wondering if God was going to show up. And, you know, I think we all know what that's like. You know, we've all had moments of wondering, is God going to show up? I mean, maybe you're here this morning and you're not a Christian. You know, you're here just because you were trying to figure out if you could ever believe this stuff. And you were wondering... Could God actually be real? Could He actually be there? Could He actually know me? Could He actually care about me? That's exactly where Will was four years ago. And maybe that's where you are this morning, wondering if God could actually show up. You know, or maybe you're in a season of suffering. And seasons of suffering can often be seasons where God seems detached and distant, and we find ourselves wondering and waiting and longing for God to actually show up. 
Maybe you're in a hard season of your marriage right now. And you're just wondering, is God going to show up? Maybe you're just in a season of, of spiritual dryness. Wondering, is God going to show up? And I chose this passage this morning because Acts chapter 2 tells us that God always shows up. He always shows up. And it actually gives us some of the marks of what it looks like when He does show up. Here you have the early church. Right? And Jesus has just resurrected and he's ascended to be with the Father. And it's not that Elvis has left the building, but God has left the building. He is gone. And you have this small group of Jesus followers who are left wondering, now what? You know, is God going to show up? And all of a sudden, God shows up. He sends the Holy Spirit at Pentecost, earlier in Acts chapter 2. And, and now he is with them in a new way. He is actually in them. God shows up in a new way, and I'm telling you, big things start to happen. And that's what we're going to look at this morning. What are some of the marks of when God actually shows up? So let's read and pray, and then we'll jump in. This is uh, the word from the Scriptures in Acts chapter 2. Jesus alone says He has the words of life. So let me invite you to, to listen in as I read. And they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and the fellowship, to the breaking of bread and the prayers. And awe came upon every soul, and many wonders and signs were being done through the apostles. And all who believed were together and had all things in common. And they were selling their possessions and belongings and distributing the proceeds to all as any had need. And day by day, attending the temple together and breaking bread in their homes, they received their food with glad and generous hearts, praising God and having favor with all the people. And the Lord added to their number day by day those who were being saved. This is God's word. Let's pray together. Jesus, we thank you that you are the God who knows us. You see us this morning. And you know us. You know where every single person in this room comes from. You know that some of us are here this morning and we are skeptical of the things that we have sung, of the things that we have prayed, of the things that we've just read. Uh, We are trying to figure out if we could ever believe these things. Others of us are here this morning and we are filled with confidence and joy as we read and as we sing and as we pray. We are filled with a sense of nearness to you. Uh, Others of us here this morning knew a day that was like that, and we we long to to experience you afresh again. Some of us are just numb and exhausted from life. We're exhausted from our children. We're exhausted from our jobs. We're exhausted from our relationships. And we need you to come uh, and meet with us. Father, wherever we are in this room this morning, would you come and meet us by your Spirit? Would you meet us through your Word? Would you help us to know and to feel your smile? We pray this through Christ. Amen. So, three marks I want to look at this morning of when God shows up. When God shows up, You get a common life, you get a common story, 
and you get a common mission. Okay? A common life, a common story, and a common mission. First, you get a common life. One of the marks of God showing up is that community begins to form. Uh, You no longer see yourself as just kind of an individual living as an island, but you begin to see yourself as someone who is actually made for relationship, made for relationship with God, but also made for relationship with other people. The first student that I ever met was a student by the name of Rosanna Liu. Rosanna was Chinese-American, and uh, she was sort of kind of smart because she graduated in three years from Berkeley. So I was, I was basically insecure every time we sat down to talk, okay? And the first time I met Rosanna, uh, I actually asked her if she would serve as our RUF president because the university requires that you have a student to serve as the acting president in order to be registered as, uh, as, a, as a student body group on campus. And so I'd never met Rosanna before. She'd never met me before. First conversation, hi, my name's Brent. You're, my name's Rosanna. It's great to meet you. Will you be the president for this thing I'm trying to do on campus? I have no clue why, but in God's kind providence, Rosanna said yes. And, and when she said yes, I really did begin to suspect, okay, maybe God is beginning to show up. Maybe God is beginning to work. But the moment... The moment that I was convinced that God was actually doing something was when Rosanna began to invite her friends, and they actually came. And uh, it was amazing. We had this little community that was beginning to form. It was seven students and me. And, and, and the seventh, they were all Asian. Berkeley is 50% Asian. Okay, so, so our first small group is seven students, seven Asian students, and Brent Webster from Greer, South Carolina. I mean, it is like, where is Waldo? It was absolutely hilarious. But it was so beautiful because it was this group of people who were beginning to care about one another, who were beginning to do life together, who were entering into community. And that's exactly what we see in Acts chapter 2, that this is a group of people who share a common life together. They are together all the time. I mean, did you notice it as we read the passage? They are, they are meeting together every week in verse 42. Uh, they are meeting, they, they, they are devoted to, we'll get to the apostles' teaching in just a minute, but they are devoted to the fellowship. Okay, this is not just any fellowship. This is the weekly corporate gathering of God's people. And they are devoted to the breaking of bread. This is not just any meal, but this is the meal. This is is what we eat and drink regularly as God's people together. And, you know, it's not just that they were kind of coming together on Sundays, just kind of showing up for an hour and a half and then kind of jetting for the rest of the week. No, they were together all the time. Look at this in verse 46, that they are breaking bread together in one another's homes. I mean, there's this sense of radical hospitality, of radical friendship, of radical community that is beginning to take place. They are together all the time, and they are sharing this common life together. Now, think about this. You know, we plan. We plan for everything. I mean, we plan for our careers. We plan for our children. Some of you get exhausted when the summer comes around because you've got to scramble to figure out, like, how are we going to fill the schedule, right? We plan for our children. We plan for 
uh, our vacations. We plan for our savings. We plan for our retirement. And you know what we so often fail to plan for? People. Community. And what we see in Acts chapter 2 is that the early church, this group of people, is a group of people who are making room for one another. This is what happens when God shows up. Community begins to form, and it actually becomes a priority in your life. It becomes something that you plan for. It becomes something that you calendar. It becomes something that you are intentionally making room for. I mean, I've been in ministry for 10 years, and one of the things that I've really begun to notice over 10 years is that the the seasons of life where, where people tend to feel God seems most distant and most absent, seasons of life where it just feels like God is not showing up, are often seasons where we're actually disconnected from community. I see this all the time. Berkeley will mention this. It is one of the most lonely and isolating places I've ever seen. Relationships there are often nothing more than an interruption to the pursuit of achievement. One of the questions I always ask students is, who here really knows you? Who in this place actually knows you? And so often, tragically, the answer is no. No one knows me. And maybe that's where you are this morning. I mean, let me just ask you, who knows you? Who in this community knows you? Does anyone know you? Could that be part of why it feels like God is actually not showing up? When God shows up, community begins to happen. A common life begins to take shape. And, you know, at Berkeley, everybody talks about community. It's not just... It's not just Christians that talk about community. Everybody talks about community. There is an an assortment of communities to choose from at Berkeley. You can find a group for anything. Politics, ethnicity, athletics, academics, social causes. I mean, the list is endless. And so here's the question. What is it that makes Christian community distinctive? What is it that makes Christian community any different from any other community. And that brings us to the second point. Because you don't just get a common life when God shows up, but you actually get a common story. In fact, your common life together as a community is centered around this common story that you find in Jesus. Now, what do I mean by a common story? Um, you know, it's interesting. Most most communities often function like clubs, right? So what, think about this. You know, clubs are when you, you're gathering around a common strength. So on our campus, if, uh, if you have business prowess, you join the investment club on campus. And uh, if, you have, if you have social prowess, you join a, a fraternity or sorority. If you have athletic prowess, you do intramurals. Uh, if you have Quidditch prowess, for all of you Harry Potter fans, you join the Cal Quidditch Club. I'm not kidding you. People are running around. This will make no sense to some of you, but for Harry Potter fans in here, people are running around on broomsticks in a big field throwing a ball through hoops. The Cal Quidditch Club. You know, and look, this is actually, it doesn't change when you graduate from college. I mean, this is true for all of us in this room 
this morning, so often the communities that we find ourselves gravitating into are places where we are strong. So maybe you're part of a running club. Maybe you're part of a book club or a wine club. Maybe you're part of a country club. Why? Because these are areas of strength for us. But what we see in Acts chapter 2 is that this is not a community that is gathering around a common strength. They're gathering around a common story. Look at the very first mark of this group of people. They, are, they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching. What in the world does that mean? What did the apostles teach? Well, the preceding verses, we read verses 42 through 47 today. Verses 14 all the way up to 41 are one long teaching session from the Apostle Peter. It's a sermon. And it is an awesome sermon. You know why it's an awesome sermon? Because it has three points. I tell my students all the time, the best sermons have three points. Coincidentally, my sermons tend to have three main points. But Peter's points are so succinct and so clear. You know what his three points are? Jesus lived. Jesus died. And Jesus rose again. Jesus lived, Jesus died, and Jesus rose again. And that's it. That is the story. That is the story that Peter and the rest of the apostles are telling over and over and over again. It is not the story of what we do for God, but it is the story of what God has done for us. It's the story of grace. And when Jesus shows up in your life, one of the marks is that you get this common story, this story of grace. You know, I'm sure. Look, I know the deal. You know, I'm from Greenville. I grew up here. I know the perceptions that this is like church land. But I I know that there are some of you here in this morning who are not sure how to make sense of this stuff. And, you know, maybe for you, your perceptions of Christianity is that it is nothing more than just kind of a manual for life. That, that, it is, that at its you know, most basic root, that the Bible is, is God's you know, instructional handbook telling you how to live a moral life and be a good person so that God will love you. George Lakoff is a professor at Berkeley. He teaches cognitive linguistics. And uh, he wrote a book called Moral Politics. And I want you to listen to what he says in this book. He said, Christianity works by a moral accounting system. Immoral deeds are debits. Moral deeds are credits. If you have a big enough positive balance of moral credit when you die, you go to heaven. And if you have a negative balance, you go to hell. Now, let me ask you, is that your perception of Christianity? For some of you in here this morning, it might be. Now, Dr. Lakoff is a brilliant man. I've had students who've had him. He could not be more wrong on this point. Because the teaching of Christianity and the teaching of the apostles that this church is committed to in Acts chapter 2, and the teaching of Jesus, and the teaching of the Gospels, and the teaching of the entirety of the Scriptures is not primarily about what we do for God, but it is first and foremost about what God has done for us. 
It is the story of Jesus' life and His death and His resurrection. And it is a story of grace. I love the way that Philip Yancey puts it. This quote is on the front of your worship folder. He says, From nursery school onward, we are taught how to succeed in the world of ungrace. The early bird gets the worm. No pain, no gain. There is no such thing as a free lunch. Demand your rights. Get what you pay for. I know these rules well because I live by them. Yet, if I care to listen... I hear a loud whisper from the gospel that I did not get what I deserved. I deserve punishment, and I got forgiveness. I deserve wrath, and I got love. I deserved debtor's prison and got instead a clean credit history. I deserved stern lectures and crawl on your knees repentance. I got a banquet spread for me. It is the story of grace. Do you know that story this morning? It's the story that we long for. Bill Moyers did a documentary on the hymn Amazing Grace. And uh, the end of the, you may have seen this, the end of the documentary ends at this all-day concert in Wembley Stadium. uh, And they're celebrating the end of apartheid in South Africa. And it, it is... I mean, it has been 12 hours of just heavy metal, head-banging, just loud music. And, I mean, the crowd has been worked into a frenzy, and they're going absolutely nuts. And out onto the stage walks the last act of the day, which is Guns N' Roses. And the crowd is just, I mean, they are going insane. And every time, you know, Guns N' Roses finishes and they walk off the stage, you know, the crowd is just chanting, you know, more, more, more. And Guns N' Roses keeps coming back out for, you know, encore after encore after encore until finally out onto the stage walks not Guns N' Roses, but this, this African woman. And she's, she's barefoot and she's dressed in African garb and she walks to the center of the stage and everybody is going crazy because all they want is Guns N' Roses. And the lights go out and this, this one silhouette spotlight comes down on her. And she begins to sing Amazing Grace, a cappella. And the crowd doesn't care. All they want is more Guns N' Roses. I mean, the first verse, they are just yelling over the top of her. But by the second verse, everyone is beginning to kind of calm down. By the third verse, everyone is listening. And by the fourth verse, everyone is singing. 70,000 people, probably not all of them sober, are singing when we've been there since thousand years, bright shining as the sun, we've no less days to sing God's praise than when we first begun. And it was this incredible moment. And Bill Moyers asked this woman who was leading the singing, he said, what happened out there. And she said, I don't, I don't know. I mean, it was, it was magic. It was not magic. You know what it was? Grace. Grace. It is the story. It is the story that we long for. And when God shows up, this becomes your story. 
Grace becomes your story. And that brings us to the third mark of God of when God shows up. Because you don't just get a common life. You don't just get a common story, but you get a common mission. When grace becomes your story, and when grace becomes the story of your community, you become a community of people that cultivates a radical love and care and concern for people who are actually outside of your community. It's exactly what we see in this passage. It ends by telling us in verse 47 that God was adding to their numbers daily. This community was just utterly exploding exponentially. I mean, this is not a group of people who are trying to kind of secure their walls from those on the outside. This is not a group of people who are trying to kind of build a big moat around themselves to keep other people out. This is not a group of people who are saying, you know, we've got a really good thing going here. Let's just kind of keep this small so we can all be really, really close. This is a group of people that is saying, you know what? Because our story is grace, that means that we don't simply exist for ourselves. As one person has put it, the church is the only organization in the world that exists for its non-members. When grace becomes a story of your community, you get a common mission. You get wrapped up into this wonderful mission of what God is doing and calling you into to love and to serve and to care for those who are outside of your community. We had our last RUF this past semester, the very beginning of May. And after, after our uh, meeting that night, a girl walks up to me and she is just, she's weeping. And I said, let's, she said, can I talk to you? I said, sure, let's step outside. And she says to me, I'm from Shanghai and I'm new at Berkeley and I've never, I've never been around Christianity. I really don't know why I came tonight. My, uh, my friend invited me to come, uh, but I need to tell you something. And she said, nobody knows this about me. There's one person, one other person, which let me just tell you, as a, as a campus minister, you realize in moments like this, what a privilege it is for somebody to say to you, I, I'm telling you something that very few people know. I'm entrusting you with some very privileged information. She said, one month ago today, I had an abortion. Just sobbing. And she said, I, I'm depressed. I can't sleep. Um, I can't forgive myself. And I don't think I'll ever be able to forgive myself. And then she said, but something about what you said tonight gave me hope that this Jesus you believe in might be what I need. And now she's reading through the Gospel of John and investigating the person of Jesus and the story of grace. That is why I moved to Berkeley. That is why RUF exists, for the sake of students like that. Is this how you think about your life? I mean, Jesus is like a spiritual tornado. He brings you in and then he spits you back out. This is not just for people who are getting paid for ministry. 
This is what Jesus calls his people to, this common mission. You know, it's part of what I love about this church. Honestly, I'll never forget walking through this place with Brian Haybig when it was, when it was you know, it, it was a car garage. I mean, it was nasty. And it was smelly. And it was, you know, I thought, what are you going to do? You have a church here? You know, you got a lot of work to do, man. I mean, it was, it was barren. And what's happened? Look at this. This is amazing. Look at what Jesus is doing in and through this church that says, we are here not just for ourselves, but we are here for downtown Greenville. When, when God begins to show up, this is what begins to happen. You, you, you get wrapped into this mission of what Jesus is doing in this world. Let me just finish with this. I, um, I think back to that first day on campus a lot. And the reason I think back to it a lot is because there are a lot of moments for me that are, that are incredibly discouraging on campus. Uh, but that moment is a moment of great encouragement for me. And the reason is because God did more than just show up. I walked off campus that day wondering, is God going to show up? He's done more than just show up. And you know what? He's done it despite all of my unbelief, all of my doubt, all of my skepticism. And RUF has grown. I mean, it's, it's grown in numbers, but really more than just that, I've gotten to see the gospel change the lives of students in a place like Berkeley. It's been amazing. I mean, I've gotten to see students like Will, who stood up here today and said, Jesus has called me his brother. God has made me his son. Students who've never been around Christianity before, who have moved from death to life, all because of what Jesus has done for them. I've gotten to see students uh, like Rachel this past semester, who's from Singapore, who was baptized. I mean, the waters of new life rushing down her head. I've gotten to see students, who Christians who come to Berkeley and don't lose their faith, but actually grow in their faith and develop such a, a, a vision and a longing to serve Jesus and his kingdom that they're moving out into all sorts of vocations in the world, like working at Google and consulting and teaching. And, you know, I mean, it's just a bit amazing to me to see how God is sending his people out. Now, I've gotten to, uh, to walk with students through dating and then marry them. I've seen students who literally hated the church end up joining it and serving it and loving it. I've seen students go through tremendous suffering. Students like Luke, who texted me yesterday from his brother's graveside on the one-year anniversary of his suicide, and say to me, I am so thankful for RUF and because of how God has used this ministry in my life, I don't know if I will ever feel far from Jesus again. Students who go through tremendous suffering and loss and come out on the other side of it with a sober hope in the resurrection and God making all things new. I've seen students endure mental illness 
and depression and addiction and hope in Jesus in the midst of it. I mean, I've watched God kind of raise up this community of students who love one another and love people outside of their borders and say, we want to be a place that's not just for us. We want to be a place that's for for this campus. I mean, it has been a great ride for me. I just can't tell you what a great ride has been for me. And you know what God is really teaching me through this? It's taken seven years, and it'll probably take another 50 more. But what I'm beginning to learn is that God's kingdom is a freight train. And it cannot be stopped. And it cannot be stopped in places like downtown Greenville when Jesus shows up and he takes an old car repair shop and he turns it into a church that is saying, we want to love this place. And it cannot be stopped in places like Berkeley, California. Aslan is on the move. Jesus is at work. And that's what happens when God shows up. Let's pray. Jesus, we thank you this morning for the good story of grace. That your love for us is not dependent on our own efforts and our own performances for you, but it is rooted in all that you have done for us. Would you help us to lean more deeply into that story this morning? Maybe for some of us, it might be leaning into it for the very first time. Others of us have heard that story ever since we can remember. And we need to hear it again. Help us to hear it. Help us to hear it not just in black and white, but in technicolor. In such a way that it would send us out to love one another. And that it would send us out in a mission to love the world. We pray this through Christ. Amen.